Welcome to the AZ Politicast podcast. I'm Steve Goldstein. Cyber attacks and hacking have become extremely common and they've affected millions of people, even to some extent, presidential candidates. In his book, Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, The Dark History of the Information Age and Five Extraordinary Hacks, Yale professor Scott Shapiro covers just how many hackers mess with our lives, or at least attempt to. The situation the title refers to is when Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign was the target of Russian hackers. Shapiro was the guest speaker as part of ASU's Future Security Initiative. The presentation borrowed from the name of his book, as it was called Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, How the Russians Hacked the DNC, and Why It Happened. Coming up in just a few seconds on AZ Politicast, Shapiro and I talk about cyber attacks and how government and elections can be protected from them. It's almost impossible to have any conversation about politics without mentioning Donald Trump. So Donald Trump in 2016 mentioning hacking Hillary Clinton. How does this play into one of the stories in your book? So one of the stories, one of the five stories in the book is the fancy bear hack of the Democratic National Committee, which occurred in roughly March and April of 2016. Um, Contrary to what people tend to think, the Russians did not hack Hillary for America. Ironically, she had excellent cybersecurity, you know, for but her emails, she, her campaign had excellent cybersecurity. Um, but when uh, Fancy Bear, which is the code name which was given by the um, cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike for Russian hacking unit in the GRU, Russian military intelligence, they hacked into the DNC, exfiltrated lots of information, and then funneled it to WikiLeaks, which then put it on the web. And it and Donald Trump and his campaign um, tr- uh, trumpeted it as um, as containing information that was politically that was perceived to be politically damaging. So some people think that the, the uh, fancy bear hack contributed to the election of Donald Trump. And there's a great example of with John Podesta, who was had, of course had worked for Bill Clinton and was part of the Hillary Clinton campaign. Was it a risotto recipe? Is that what it was? And then, but yes, because it, but because it was a secret, it became somehow super exciting because it came from that campaign. Right, exactly. So John Podesta was the um, chairperson for Hillary for America, and when the Russians couldn't get into uh, the campaign network, they went after his personal Gmail account. Um, and there's a story in the book where the where the IT person for um, uh, for uh, John Podesta has um, uh, basically said um, this email from, it looked like Google, but it really was from Fancy Bear was legitimate and that he should change his password. He meant to type it was not legitimate. Um, and that led to uh, John Podesta um, losing control over all his Gmail um, uh, messages. And as you mentioned, one of the messages involved a recipe for shrimp risotto, and that somehow was made to seem as uh, very nefarious. <laughs> I suppose it's it's in the same vein when people used to have handwritten diaries and then like a sibling would be excited to, oh my gosh, you know, my sister left the thing out on top of the desk. Now I can read what's in her diary. And because it's a secret, it automatically becomes really exciting. Is this part of what we're seeing? Because hacking to many of us, though 
know, I've interviewed people who who have engaged in hacking. I've interviewed scientists who study it because many of us don't understand it. Does hacking take on sort of a sexiness and an excitement that sometimes is is real and and oftentimes is not? Oh, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with that more. Arthur C. Clarke, the um, person who wrote uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, famously said that every advanced technology always seems like magic. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I wrote Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, because I wanted to explain it, to kind of demystify it. But definitely, um, because hackers did it, it lent it a kind of sexy, shadowy, dark quality. I think we're a bit, the American public is a bit more sophisticated now about the um, contents of hacked accounts. Uh, it's not clear to me um, what effect it would have now. It certainly was incredibly powerful in 2016. Were there lessons learned from either the Hillary Clinton campaign or others that have come since then to find out that that hacking a campaign is or should be more difficult than it would have been seven, eight years ago? Yeah. So I want to, so there's a, in the book, I referenced this incredibly good article. Um, I think Sonny Gonzalez was the, um, the author, one of the authors. And uh, basically what the paper shows is how unbelievably difficult it is to secure a political campaign. Because remember, political campaigns like our startups, you know, they pop in to existence and they pop out of existence. And, you know, anybody who works on a campaign, they're going to have a campaign account, but they're going to have a TikTok account. They're going to have a t Twitter account. They're going to have a personal email. They're going to have work, uh, several work emails, you know, so battening down the hatches of a political campaign, given the ephemeral nature of the campaign, um, is, is very, very difficult. That having been said, there's been an enormous amount of work done because of the fancy bear hack to make to to lock down to harden uh, political campaigns so something like this doesn't happen or if it does the damage is not so bad and how does that defense against hacking or defense against cyber warfare exist in our federal government more generally so not in the campaign sense and not in an individual campaign but in terms of what the federal government is trying to do to protect the government or the rest of us against hacks are there things that where you're seeing advances in the broader federal government? Absolutely. Um, the federal government has not been particularly good at uh, protecting their assets. They have gotten much better. But remember, you know, so much of the world runs on Microsoft and they depend on Microsoft. And there have been a number of very high profile Microsoft hacks um, uh, Chinese uh, Chinese hackers basically stealing cryptographic keys um, to cloud accounts that uh, the government uses. And so the government, in a sense, can only be as secure as the products it's using. So the government has gotten much better, federal government's gotten much better, but it still has a ways to go because of relying on private vendors. But the, um, you also mentioned state and local governments. That, this is an enormous um, problem, and there has been a lot of work by CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, to build up the resources, harden the state and local governments 
and their election um, um, apparatus. But I would just say one thing um, to make people feel a little bit um, uh, more, uh, more at ease. Because we have such a decentralized election system, as my dean, Heather Gerken, who's an election law expert, would say is, in the United States, you know, if there is voter fraud, it's going to be petty larceny, not grand larceny, because each, you know, locality has its own setup. And so it's really hard to, 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 to hack everyone because they all have very different setups. So the kind of distributed nature of our election system and our critical infrastructure more generally is actually, um, it's both a bug and a feature. Scott, that's a really important point to make because with all the misinformation and disinformation regarding campaigns, and of course, we've seen it spotlighted here in Arizona, even though not one complaint has been found to be valid. I will ask you how much of the the misinformation and disinformation is believed by the public because many people in the public, again, even as they become more savvy, don't necessarily understand how these things work. So it's like, well, well, of course, someone could have broken in and changed my vote, even if that doesn't seem valid. Um, is there a possibility that's going to get worse and worse because the perception of what the technology can do and the protections or to some people lack thereof might make them perceive a certain way? Absolutely. I mean, if you don't understand a technology, and frankly, almost nobody does, we're talking about very, very small percentage of the public understands cybersecurity. Um, I wrote Fancy Bear Goes Fishing in part because I wanted to explain it to people that it isn't dark magic and that it, you know, if you, you know, have, you know, general education, went to school, um, you can, you can learn about it too. Um, but that having been said, so much of what's happening is happening because leaders, in particular, um, former President Trump, ha and um, and various um, uh, acolytes have been pushing um, a scenario. Uh, Carrie Lake, for example, um, pushing the scenario of a massive elect, um, election fraud, voter fraud, and people follow the people they trust. Um, what would really help? What would really help is if every single jurisdiction had a paper backup. Um, that would really help because, you know, paper is paper. People believe in paper. Um, and that having been said, you know, somebody has got to count the paper. People have counted the paper yes. and uh, <laughs> people still don't believe it. So, you know, um, we're dealing with what I like to say is we're dealing with uh, cybersecurity. We think of it as a technical problem, but really it's a human problem and human beings, um, uh, tend to trust certain people and not others. And unfortunately, we have humans that have been lying a lot. Um, and then it's just natural for people who um, believe and trust these, the, the, these um, mendacious uh, figures, um, they end up believing things that are not true. I was Scott Shapiro, Yale professor and author of Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, The Dark History of the Information Age and Five Extraordinary Hacks. I'm probably asking you this a decade too late, but just how much is cyber warfare going to be what we become more familiar with? And does that make individual and smaller actors more dangerous to anyone around the world? Because hacking and cyber warfare can be seemingly done on a much smaller budget, a much smaller scale. 
So I got interested in the subject largely because I was interested in cyber war and everyone was saying it was the next stage in the evolution of war. And um, at least at the in, in Fancy Bear Goes Fishing towards the end, I, I, I try to explain why I think that that's an enormous mistake. Um, think of Russia. Russia, when it did not want to attack Ukraine because it didn't think it was strong enough, um, launched relentless cyber attacks on Ukraine. When it felt it was strong enough, it invaded with tanks, bombs, and foot soldiers. So what I like to say is, you know, cyber weapons are weapons of the weak. They are used by weak states against strong states to annoy, harass, um, do things that they um, that kinetic weapons can't do because they don't want to use kinetic weapons because they're afraid of the consequences, the repercussions of doing that. Um, of course, all war is cyber war in the sense that all weapon systems are very sophisticated now and they're run by computers. But when people talk about cyber war, they mean using just computers against digital networks. Um, things that you see in Die Hard 4 mm. uh, with Bruce Willis, where somebody take where one cyber terrorist takes down the entire critical infrastructure of the United States. That would that first of all, it would be incredibly hard to do that. Um, but more more than that, a nation state that did that to the United States would expect, I would imagine, you know, nuclear strikes or something uh, of that sort. Um, so that's why I tend to think that. North Korea, Iran, Russia, they engage in cyber warfare when they don't want to engage in kinetic warfare, when they are ready to really, really take, take the fight to their rivals. They use bombs, tanks, and foot soldiers. I used the term sexy before. I'll use it one more time in this one. Is it considered to be as sexy to counter cyber attacks as it is to carry them out? Meaning, you know, do we have enough young people in in schools who want to figure out a way to not be necessarily edgy one who's carrying out the thing and risking prison time as opposed to ones who want to counter what they're seeing out there is there is there enough passion for the defense part of it well let me just say that um attacking is always sexier than defending <laughs> uh, red team as they say is always sexier than blue team uh red's the attacker blue's the defender uh -huh. Um, so that having been said, um, everyone who defends has to know how to attack because you can't defend something if you don't know its vulnerabilities and how the attacker will work. So anyone who works on the blue team knows how to be on the red team as well. What's going to really motivate and is motivating people is less the sexiness of it and the, uh, more the economics of it. They're estimated to be three and a half million cybersecurity jobs less left unfilled. Mm. And that's where students, when they graduate, they're going to, you know, some of them may go to the National Security Agency to be like top hackers. And most of them will go to, you know, enterprises, IT departments, and they will secure, you know, our businesses um, for us. And that is because it's a it's a it's a very good job that pays well um and there's demand for it and i think that's what's going to push things along that is scott shapiro he's a yale professor and also author of fancy bear goes fishing the dark history of the information age and five extraordinary hacks 
Scott, I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much for the time. Well, this was really fun. Thank you so much, Steve. Thanks again to Yale professor Scott Shapiro, who is part of the speaker series of ASU's Future Security Initiative. To listen to previous editions of AZ Politicast, please search Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And when you find AZ Politicast, please subscribe, rate, and review. To give me guests and topic suggestions, please send an email to azpoliticast at gmail.com. That's azpoliticast at gmail.com. Music for this podcast is from Epidemic Sound. Thanks for listening to AZ Politicast. I'm Steve Goldstein.